This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here we go. I think we're live to both YouTube and Facebook. This is MD, Dr. Zubin Demania. It's New Year's Eve, the year of our Lord, 2020, which I cannot, I don't know about you, but hasn't been the best of years. And I'm glad it's gone. I'm gonna be really glad to see the backside of this year because I think 2021 is gonna be a lot better. Anyways, we're gonna do our last live show of the year right now. We're gonna talk about a few things like where flu went, why people are telling you you need to mask and distance even after getting the vaccine, why so many healthcare professionals are suddenly vaccine hesitant, and other things, including your questions. So welcome to the show. Uh, I'm gonna pull up your stuff here on... Facebook, Uh, there we go, everybody's here. All right, let's do this. Let me make sure YouTube's working. It is, Annette is here and Gabriella's here and Mike3S, yo Z-Dog, what up fam? So normally we just do this for supporters, but today I'm just pan blasting everything because you know what, YOLO, (laughs) December 31st, I can, it's just so awesome. Am I going anywhere? Am I gonna be celebrating? No, I'm doing what I've been doing like every single day which is sit at home and pickle, just basically marinate in my own brine. So let's talk about a few things. There's a couple things I need to tell you about. One, I think is really interesting, and that's influenza. So where the hell did flu go? Looking at the data, right? (laughs) Basically, as COVID started appearing in the West, flu started disappearing. So last year's flu season looked like it was gonna be a rager. So when it started, you know, it was very busy. People were starting to freak out, like this is gonna be one of the busiest flu seasons in memory. Now, what's interesting is how much of that was influenza and they were testing and how much of it was undiagnosed early COVID that got here before we knew it and we were calling it flu. I mean, this is just speculation, but it is interesting to think about. So flu was looking horrible. And then all of a sudden, flu just basically flew away. Like it disappeared. Like people were like, what happened to flu? And really thinking about this in in the sense of, okay, what did we do? What did flu do? What did COVID do? Is really illustrative in terms of understanding how these dynamics actually work and does masking, does social distancing, do lockdowns, how do they affect respiratory viruses? 
and I think it's worth talking about. So let's talk about it. Thank you, Josette, for the $10 super chat on YouTube and to people who are sending stars, which is a way, it's like a tip jar. Jennifer Cromwell on um, Facebook, uh, Lisa Percy, who says, here's to a 2020 ending. Exactly, all right, and uh, Linda Anders. All right, influenza is a respiratory virus, just like COVID. Um, we've had millennia of exposure to influenza viruses. And in fact, in the last few decades, we've also had something that we don't have for COVID or hadn't had for COVID, which is a vaccination. So the fact that the human population under kind of has experienced most influenza strains and every now and again, a new one shows up, right? That, that humans are a little bit naive to like H1N1 or pandemic, uh, Spanish flu in 1918, in which case we don't have that sort of antibody memory and a lot of people get sick uh, and it becomes you know, potentially a pandemic. With influenza though, in general, we have this sort of collective antibody memory and the advantage of having a vaccination that isn't perfect, but it is at least partially effective. And so as a result, influenza, uh, isn't doesn't have that same punch necessarily that this novel coronavirus might have. Now we may have some pre-existing immunity to coronaviruses in the form of memory T cells and exposure to other cold induced, like you know, colds, common colds that are coronavirus or even other coronaviruses that we haven't characterized. So there may be some existing immunity and it may be in different populations expressed differently, but in general, humans were a little more naive, pretty much naive to exposure to, to the novel SARS-CoV-2. So what ends up happening? Suddenly influenza drops off, like just dis like the flu season just ended last year, it was gone. And not only that, but looking at Australia, which has the inverse flu season of us, or the Southern, he Southern hemisphere, because their summer is the opposite of ours, um, Winter is typically when you see influenza boom. And it's because, again, for the same reasons that actually coronavirus is also quite seasonal, it seems. Uh, easier to, everyone's indoors, school is in session. It turns out children really do transmit influenza quite a bit because they're also affected by it. It can kill children, it can sicken children. They're prime vectors of influenza. So f uh, when schools are open, unlike in the summer, it's, it's a more stable virus on surfaces and in the air in colder temperatures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very seasonal outbreak. What we saw is when Australia was supposed to have its flu season, there was none. There was like nothing. And now we're in full-blown flu season in the US and in the Northern hemisphere, and we're seeing nothing, like no flu. So what's going on? Well. Here are the possible explanations and what I think about them, because it is again, really informative in terms of what could actually be happening with coronavirus and do our measures actually have any effect? So the first thing that could be happening is, well, all right, what about um, social distancing, masking, that sort of thing? Is that, has that been having an effect? Well, it started, people started doing that almost voluntarily in the early days of coronavirus outbreak. And so certainly timing wise, that could have an effect, but then why isn't it stopping COVID? Cause people are like, well, it seems like we're doing enough to almost eliminate flu, but not enough for COVID. 
And here's a possible explanation. And there's a couple. COVID is more contagious. And this is a fact. So it turns out COVID's re reproductive number is somewhere between two and 3.5, depending, right, on what's going on in society. It's not a function of the virus. It's a function of a lot of different things, how easy it is for one person to spread their infection to others. With coronavirus, and particularly with the new variant that showed up in the UK and is now clearly in the US and probably in other countries, because we're not testing for it, so it's probably everywhere. So probably they feel it's a little more communicable. So it doesn't mean it's more deadly. Does In, in other words, it's not gonna kill you more likely, but it might be easier to spread. It means the reproductive number's higher, the are not. So, it, but even prior to that, coronavirus is very contagious respiratory disease. And so, it might be just influenza is less contagious, harder to get, and therefore interventions like masking in the community, distancing, hand washing, might be enough to really flatten the curve for influenza, whereas it only kind of does something for coronavirus. Because maybe you need much more compliance with the public to affect coronavirus spread because it's so much more transmissible. But for influenza, if you know 70% of the public behaves themselves in the way that the public health authorities are shouting and the left is morally preening us to do, uh, that's enough for influenza, but not enough for coronavirus. So that's one possible explanation. I think it's interesting and possible. The other interesting thought is that we've pretty much shut down a lot of international travel. Now, international travel is a prime vector for influenza because flu just seems to really love to go from country to country that way. And so that the fact that a lot of international travel and even domestic travel has been squanched probably has contributed to influenza's decline, but coronavirus maybe not as much because it already got out of the barn and is everywhere in the community. So. That may be a piece of it, right? Now, the other piece of it is, again, is innate immunity to influenza. So over the years, if you've gotten your flu shot every year, if you've just been exposed to influenza every year, uh, you have some collective memory that resists being infected with influenza. So you combine masking, distancing, hand washing, lack of international travel, closure of schools, which let's talk about this in a second. So closure schools, add that together, that's enough to flatten flu to zero almost, pretty much. Let's call a spade a spade. Flu is not existing right now in any meaningful way. This is a disease that infects and kills hundreds of thousands a year, not just in the US, but worldwide, and it's gone. Like let that sink in for a second we do have some effect on viral dynamics, right? Depending on the virus and the degree. So you can imagine if we did absolutely nothing, how prevalent coronavirus might be. I mean, everybody would have been infected probably, right? If you're extrapolating from this from first principles. So we, we have some existing immunity, so that lowers the reproductive number because there's less people to inf that, that the virus is able to infect. And then we've taken these precautions, we've closed schools, we've stopped international travel. I think that's a big piece of it. Now, the, but the other piece that's interesting, we're gonna get back to schools in a second here because then we're gonna say, why isn't it affecting coronavirus the way that we think it should? Now, bottom line is it probably is, it is affecting it. Because if we didn't do these things, numbers would be even higher. 
it'd be through the roof. But of course, we know when, when you see hospitals overflowing and refrigerated morgue vans, people just change their behavior. So it's not like we would ever just have it rip roaring because people aren't that dumb. They would just see what's going on and they would say, okay, I'm gonna take these precautions myself without anyone telling me to do it, which I think is a component of it anyways. So all that being said, what, what the other sort of theoretical possibility and CDC has raised this possibility, but said it's probably less likely, is something called viral interference. So viral interference is an interesting phenomenon where if you have more than one respiratory virus, now we know you can get multiple viruses at once. You can be co-infected, RSV and influenza, you know, these things happen. But viruses that reproduce in the upper respiratory tract, like influenza and coronavirus, compete a little bit for infection sites, for dominance. And a more contagious, infective virus like SARS-CoV-2 might outcompete through a process called viral interference, upper respiratory syndromes like influenza. And so there may be a component of that, but, but the thing is, what we saw was influenza dropping off early on last year much faster then we were seeing documented infections anyways, of course we weren't testing very well, documented infections for SARS-CoV-2. So this idea of direct viral interference didn't, didn't seem as valid. It doesn't seem to make as much sense as our, our actual response to the virus was having a bigger effect on influenza than it was gonna have on a new coronavirus that's more infective, that, that we have less preexisting immunity for. And I think, I think that's really, the biggest piece of it. Now, what about schools? Cause this is really interesting. Shutting down the schools doesn't, I'm gonna say this out loud and I don't care if people disagree, they can come at me because honestly, there's a lot of nuance here and you can show data either way. But I strongly believe that shutting schools down for younger children, let's say 13 and younger, 16 and younger, has absolutely no effect <laughs> on the viral dynamics of SARS-CoV-2. I think, there's, there's enough evidence that young children are not as effective vectors of spreading this disease. They get less infected. Maybe they have less density of ACE2 receptors that bind this virus. They're, they're less likely to be agents of the spread and less likely to spread it themselves than um, children that are older, like 16 and up, college age kids, uh, upper high school, et cetera, and adults. And so closing the schools didn't do Oh, it doesn't do a whole lot for SARS-CoV-2, but it does a lot for influenza, a lot. If you're distance learning with those kids, they're not spreading flu and they are dirty little pus buckets full of flu, pretty much, right? So again, I think that's an interesting, all of that's very fascinating. Now, there are a lot of like, you know, random conspiracy people who are like, well, you know, you guys, the flu went away, but why well, masks don't work on COVID, you're telling us different things. Whatever, dude, <laughs> I just explained why it might be that our aggressive efforts actually work pretty good on flu, but are working less well on SARS-CoV-2. But again, what happened if we took them away? There'd be a lot more infections. Um, let's take a look at some comments before we go to the next topic. Iowa has a few kids with COVID and schools are open. No teachers reported to have COVID right now and they haven't for a while, Connie uh, Thingstat. And again, I, I, I think that, you know, I had a conversation with David Katz on the show yesterday. You should check out that interview. We're about to put out a captioned version of it if you like to read instead of um, just watch. Basically, we're, you know, 
if you risk stratify people and, and situations, it's pretty clear there's a strata of risk. Indoor bars, karaoke bars, maybe restaurants where people are in close proximity, breathing a lot of loud air, sharing the air, poor ventilation, prolonged contact, raised voices, more likely to be spreading coronavirus. Um, schools, young kids, less of a vector. Um, again, and if you throw in masking, you're lowering viral inoculum. It's all a spectrum of risk. And yet what we've done is, you know, initially we shut everything down, which I think was necessary because you have to kind of gather the data and go, okay, what's going on? Okay, now we have this data. We have some sense of what's happening. What, what should we do? And I think that's when we were like, whoa, a billion different things, right? And now we're back in the situation where everyone's panicked because there's a ton of cases and deaths are rising and hospitals are filling up, if not overfilled. And so they're going, we can go, 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 shut everything off again and reset. Have we learned nothing? Like, it's not heretical to say, okay, let's start vaccinating every single person who'll take it and let's do the basic things masking, physical distancing, avoiding large crowds, testing and self-quarantining if you're sick. That's what you ought to do. I don't think you ban outdoor dining like California's done. And I don't think you open everything up 100%. You think about risk and you stratify based on risk. But instead we have the usual, you know, Benny Hill soundtrack playing and everyone running around with, you know, with like a chicken with their head cut off and either they're catastrophizing or in full denial again. It's like, we're never gonna, <laughs> at this point, just call 2020, just call it, just call the code and let's move on to 2021. And that's what I wanna talk about next, but let's uh, let's read a few uh, a few Facebook comments here. Uh, Becky Shambly sent me 50 stars, says, thank you for the information. You're very welcome. Uh, let's pull up some stars people here and see if they're asking questions. Christine sent some stars. Um, Ah, I can't go far enough back. Let's see, at first I thought you, oh God, where'd it go? Who was saying this? Ah, it scrolled away, sorry. Let, let, let's see here. Uh, Annette Fordyce says, what about schools that are closed because too many teachers are sick and some have died? 76% of our schools closed early for Christmas and won't reopen until February. So Annette, what you need to figure out is where did those infections come from? Did they come from the community? If the schools had to close because there are no teachers because everyone's sick from community infection, that's a different scenario. And it's not saying that you had to close the schools to prevent infection. You're saying we had to close the schools because we weren't able to prevent infection in the community. And I think that's a big challenge. When you're talking about opening schools, which I'm a fierce advocate of, you also have to temper it with the nuance of saying, and by the way, like David Katz said yesterday, anyone who tells you unequivocally, this is the answer, you need to just run the other direction. Um, if they tell you the absolute, without giving you the, the con, don't trust them, all right? Because just don't. So what I'm telling you is here's the pros and cons. You can open schools and I think that's a good idea because the harms of closing schools I think are outweighed by the risks of infection, particularly in younger children. However, it's gonna be very hard to open a school when your community transmission is so crazy that teachers are sick, kids may be sick, their parents are sick. How are you gonna manage to keep a school open? It's very, very, very difficult. So that's the push and pull when there's a full-blown pandemic and we haven't really even controlled that. And, and that's why, again, I think asking people to say, you know what, let's try to be as, as responsible as we can with our own behavior without, without being absolutist about it. Don't do Thanksgiving, 
don't ever travel, don't see your loved ones, okay? That's gonna backfire and it has. California touted as this great, oh, they locked down early and they've been super aggressive. Look at them now, it's a shit show in California, depending on the county. So Southern Cal is a mess, Central Cal is a mess. The Bay Area is getting there, we're not quite there yet, but man, it is as bad as Tennessee, which did nothing, basically. So what is that telling us? It means we need to be humble in the face of what we understand and don't understand about how we can influence human behavior to control a respiratory virus that's very infectious. So very important. Um, and here's an interesting thing. So Danny Meski says, I've seen teachers that got sick and they were all obese, um, Danny Meski. Let, let's talk about this for a moment. And this is something that again, this will get people canceled for saying this. There are definitely healthy, thin, doing everything right people that get sick and even die from coronavirus and all in all age brackets, right? But, if you're looking at risk and probabilities and actual numbers, you are much more likely to end up hospitalized, sick, or die if you are obese and particularly significantly obese. You have a shitty diet, which is creating metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, um, or you're otherwise immune compromised. And I think immune compromise comes in many forms. People who are overworked, stressed, the poor diet immunocompromises you, underslept, poor sleep. I think vitamin D deficiency probably is a contributor to all of this. So our American lifestyle and our SAD, our standard American diet has put us at higher risk. Now you can blame, this is what, what, I, what I'm gleaning from your comment is a kind of a, a, a shaming of the people who've gotten sick. And I've seen this too. Well, you were just fat and diabetic and it's your fault. No, you know what? You're also a minority, so you shouldn't have been that. Uh, and oh gosh, it's, it sucks that you're poor. Why'd you choose to be poor? Because now you've got coronavirus because you're forced to live with you know all your fellow poor fat minorities. I mean, that's literally how, how people think about this, I think. And then, you know, Dr. Drew gets coronavirus at age 61 and is like struggling through all the fears and all that, but he has access to all the best care and everything. So listen, first of all, we've created a society that makes us fat and stupid. Uh, let's be completely honest. American society is, is custom made to make its citizens fat, lazy, and stupid. Why do I say fat? Because big food and all of this stuff basically creates the easiest, cheapest possible way to eat is to get fast food or to eat garbage processed trash food. And I don't care if you are if you like a plant-based diet or you like keto or you like whatever, all of that is superior to the standard American diet, which is abject garbage. And it's funded by you know corn subsidies that the government gives and big food and big agriculture. I mean, this, it look, you want conspiracy theories? There's a conspiracy theory that I actually buy into that people make a lot of money keeping Americans fat, lazy, and stupid. Now, why do I say stupid? Because we are the victims, we're manipulated by algorithms designed by you know tech bros here in the Valley and engineers that don't even understand how they work with the sole goal of turning you into a product that clicks on ads 
And there, it's an attention economy. So the goal is to get your attention and get you to click on this ad. And they're optimized to do that. So how do they do that? They generate polarization, black and white thinking, which basically sells much more than any nuanced discussion that I'm gonna have with you. They're not gonna, that's never gonna sell, right? I'm shocked that we have 4,200 viewers on Facebook right now live and 560 on YouTube. Like that, that's just a sign of like, people that are off the typical bell curve tuning in, right? Because otherwise it's much easier for me to be CNN and just induce outrage and polarization or Fox and induce outrage and polarization because that's how they make money. So we've turned Americans stupid, fat, lazy, because it's easier just to stare at a device than to actually have a conversation with someone. And, and then we've polarized ourselves so much that we then blame the victims of all of this and go, well, you're fat, so you got COVID. I'm not fat, so I'm not gonna get COVID. Uh, that's a tough one, man. That's a tough sell. It's it's seductive, believe me. I, I did a video where I said, basically, if your child is obese, it's your fault. And the I made that video with a very specific aim, which is to tell parents, young parents who have new kids, that you control your child's diet. And if you're giving them a bottle full of root beer or Dr. Pepper, which I've seen happen, or you're feeding them junk food, right? That's in your control, right? Now, shaming actually doesn't really work, but if you're gonna get someone's attention so that they can be educated that, you know what? Refined and processed sugar for a baby or a child is the reason they are fat. There's a little genetic component, sure, Obese parents tend to have obese children, but how much of that is genetics? How much of that is, again, an educational level of, hey, this is not stuff you put in your body. Whose fault is that? Well, once you know the answers to those dietary questions, once I've told you, hey, don't do that, then it's your fault. But until then, it's like, well, we built a society that just basically is a perfect kindling for coronavirus to rip through and kill 330,000 people, 40% of whom are nursing home patients. And again, as David Katz was saying with me, if we just targeted those people, but you know, a guy like Jay Bhattacharya, who's a pretty thoughtful doctor and goes up and says these things, he's branded as a heretic and a murderer by the mainstream media and by other scientists who are so in their own, I'm trying not to curse here, so in their own bubble that they won't even listen to rational, discourse that says maybe there is a way to do targeted targeted approaches. Now, maybe there isn't. Maybe it's hard to protect people when half the country has risk factors for COVID because we're fat, lazy, and stupid. Again, not by our own design, but by our society that's created this. People say the healthcare system is broken. It's not broken. It's designed, it, it works exactly as it was designed. To be a sick care system that's reactive and our pharmaceutical industry is designed exactly, it's not broken, it's designed exactly as it is to be reactive and to fix the problems that we as a society have created with more medications that don't really fix anything. Now, the exception is gonna be the vaccine here. Now, let's talk about the vaccine because this is, I think this is very important. We're gonna talk about why they're saying you should still mask and all that, and also why some healthcare professionals aren't, aren't getting it. Um, 
When this whole thing started, and Paul Offit and I were having discussions about the vaccine, I think our biggest concern, and I think David Katz shared this, Jay Bhattacharya shared this, is that never in history have we created a vaccine from scratch, a new vaccine for a new pathogen. Like H1N1 flu doesn't count. That's an influenza. It's an easy modification. It still takes a year to do because you're culturing these viruses and growing them in eggs and all this other bullshit. With, with coronavirus, we have a novel virus that no one's made a vaccine for. But what people don't realize, and, and the reason we were talking about it is we're saying, well, it's never been done. So why are we waiting? Why are we like locking everybody down in their houses and instilling all this fear in people and, and not parsing out risk and not teaching people to think critically and manage their risk appropriately and promoting simple interventions instead of complex economy crushing, closing schools, destroying, you know, creating substance abuse and alcoholism and domestic abuse and educational disparities and hurting poor people. Why are we doing that with the hope that this vaccine is coming to save our lives? because we have no guarantee that it will. It's never been done for coronavirus. And all of us agreed. And then here's the vaccine. And we looked at the data and we looked at the studies and we looked at the efficacy and we looked at the safety and we said, well, holy shit, y'all done did it. Science for the win. And now we have this vaccine, right? But if we, were, if we had put everything in that basket, that would have been a terrible mistake because what if we never had one? We would have damaged everything irrevocably. Now, why do I say that I think it's a good idea to get this vaccine? I'll tell you. First of all, when people say it's been rushed, well, think about this. They've been working on mRNA, the technology behind the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine for decades. This isn't just a, oh, we suddenly came up with this idea. It's just, they never had a way to implement it on scale in a pandemic that was gonna make sense. The FDA is a bitch about you know, the bureaucracy and the approval process, so it's billions of dollars. Pharmaceuticals weren't willing to invest in finalizing those vaccines without a guarantee that they were ever gonna make a vaccine that was accepted and made money for them. And so as a result, when this thing started, actually a, a, a major great idea, I mean, the, response was fumbled on so many levels at the federal level, but one of the real successes was to say, okay, let's take the risk out of this for pharmaceutical companies by allowing them, normally they do phase one, phase two, and this kind of thing to make sure, okay, are we comfortable spending a ton of money on this thing, right? Um, well, it turns out, okay, don't worry about not making money. Don't worry about the risk of this. Go do the phase three trial, which is the trial you need to show safety and efficacy in the population on scale. That's the trial you need. The other stuff is ancillary to setting the dose and making sure animals don't die of it and all that. Phase three trial, tens of thousands of people across race and gender. And it shows a 94, 95% efficacy with amazing safety. That's nuts, you guys. And, but that was the business end of the trial. So you can use the terms rushed and forced and all this. It's all not, it, it's not applicable when the, the final product, the business end of the safety trials was done. Now you have it going into millions of arms, frontline healthcare professionals mostly, right? And what were the major safety signal we're seeing is some allergy. 
right? Some allergy signal in terms of anaphylaxis, which still is not at a high level, but it's enough that we take it very seriously. So go, oh, is it the polyethylene glycol and the nanoparticle? What is it? Let's keep looking at it. But the good news is it shows up within the 15 minutes you're sitting there. It's treatable because anaphylaxis is treatable in medical settings. So let's learn more about it and see the type of people that are prone to have this. And then we can make some ascertainments, right? Really, really remarkable. Now, here's a question though. And, and this is where I really, and, and David Katz and I were agreeing on this. I love Fauci. I think he's a brilliant uh, uh, clinician, a brilliant scientist, brilliant communicator, brilliant clinician. But some of the things he does just makes me go, why? Why are you doing this, dude? This is like the dumb, I can't even believe you're doing this. And it, and, and it comes down to the messaging. Because you get this sense that he's sitting there going, okay, now how, what do we need to say to make the population kind of go along with what we need them to go along with? That's not, that's not, first of all, it's not the impression you wanna give the public. The impression you wanna give the public is, hey, we're learning this as we go, but here's what we know so far. I'm honest with you. This is what we know, this is what we don't know. The masking debacle was a great example of them screwing that up. Now they're doubling down on that screw up by talking about, oh, well now herd immunity, did we say 60%? Sorry, let's make it 85%. Cause you know, now it looks like more people are willing to take the vaccine. Let's just up that and just, okay. Oh, and by the way, when you get the vaccine, you still got a mask and distance and not see your loved ones and you know, hunker down. Okay, uh, wait a minute. I thought you said, you see where that's, a, that's gonna really piss people off and is gonna generate the opposite of what you want, which is people to, get vaccinated so we can generate real herd immunity between natural infection and vaccine-induced immunity. So let me let me parse this out for you guys. Why would they why would they say you need to mask and you do all this? Because the phase 3 trials for Moderna and Pfizer were not designed or powered or sort of hypothesized in their in their construction to answer the question can you have an asymptomatic infection despite the vaccine? And can you transmit that asymptomatic infection? So in other words, they were designed to answer this question. Will this vaccine prevent a symptomatic infection with COVID? And even the second question, will it prevent severe disease? Will it prevent mortality? Those kind of things, and it may not powered to find mortality, but definitely powered to find the other things. And what they found was, oh, it definitely prevents symptomatic disease. Absolutely, to the tune of 95% efficacy. Oh my God, gives you chills. It's amazingly effective. And, but it didn't answer the question of what about asymptomatic infection? And here's another thing, we don't even know how important asymptomatic infection is to the spread of the disease. So there's some holes in our knowledge. So what they say then is, well, okay, out of the precautionary principle, still mask up, still distance, still do all this, despite being vaccinated, because you might still be able to transmit an asymptomatic infection that you've gotten to someone and kill grandma. And then you're just like. You, There's not a way to get people on board with what you want, because it's also, it's also maybe not even true. <laughs> and I'll tell you why, and David and I talked about this. So, Almost every vaccine in history, when you get vaccinated, 
generates enough immunity in you that even if you are exposed to the virus, it may replicate in you transiently while you spin up your immune response. But your ability to transmit that virus because the viral load is so low is probably low enough that you're not gonna make a lot of people sick. This, these two vaccines have no virus in them. There's no live virus. This is a messenger RNA. It's an email that the vaccine is sending to your cell. Hey, make this protein so that you can learn how to fight the real virus when it comes. There's no virus. That thing is not gonna infect anyone, right? It's not like a live attenuated virus, like a varicella vaccine, chickenpox vaccine. So, or measles, you know, mumps, rubella kind of thing. So by getting the vaccine, having the two weeks, to generate an initial immune response to the first dose, the second dose then solidifying that and potentially, hopefully, we don't know yet, creating a longer term immunity. Um, that should theoretically and probably in practice really, really, really bend the curve of infections to the point where, you know, it's gonna be very unlikely that you're gonna be infecting people. Now, is it zero likelihood? No. So what should the messaging have been? It should have been this. Once you get vaccinated, you still can potentially get sick because vaccines aren't perfectly effective, right? In the real world, the vaccine efficacy might be less than in the trial because it's not as controlled. Maybe it wasn't stored, right, all that. It takes time for the vaccine to kick in, like two weeks. We don't know the duration of immunity. So how about this? Do the things you've already been doing, wear your mask and distance, and but understand that probably very soon when enough people get vaccinated, you're gonna be able to just we're gonna get back to a semblance of normal really fast. And, and it's because we're gonna have real herd immunity, right? From a combination of vaccine and natural infection. And that herd immunity threshold, we just don't know what it is because it varies based on populations and existing immunity, how many, you know, how effective the vaccine is, how many people take it up, all these other things are gonna affect where we ultimately get to. So, that, that, I mean, that's probably the way to communicate that. Unfortunately, that's nuanced. It involves a little thinking. It's not black and white. It requires you to think about your own risk and the risk to others. So Americans, maybe not so much, except I have more hope for America. I have more hope for 2021, where we actually are able to think a little more critically and use nuance and, and avoid the absolutism of these two paths that are mutually exclusive. It's not like that. The truth is always some mix of gray in, in these cases. Um, Lisa Steiner, thank you so much for the thousand stars. That's very generous of you. Um, Linda McConnell says, so can two vaccinated people get together without precautions? What a great question. So you've been vaccinated, you've been vaccinated. Now, what's the collective risk of the two of them uh, giving a virus to each other? Because uh, that's the reason you wouldn't want to get together is one infects the other. I'm going to tell you the answer to that is infinitesimally small. It's not zero, but dude, I could get hit by an asteroid right now. Does that mean I, I, I go hide in an asteroid bunker? No. I mean, between you and me and Fauci will never say this. You got vaccinated? You got vaccinated? Hey, have at it, bros. Because the chances, assuming you've had the two weeks after the vaccination, so on and so forth, right? Now, again, is it possible? Yeah. Could one of the vaccines not have taken? Could you be that 5%? Sure. What are the chances of both of you being the 5%? Right? It's pretty small. So this is how you have to think. It's like David said on the show yesterday. There's science. I could give you all the numbers. Well, there's a 5% probability. To, and then there's sense. What does sense tell us? Don't 
be insane. Don't catastrophize, understand the risks and benefits. Not seeing my friend, not connecting with another human, being isolated and lonely, making our patients die alone in the hospital. Come on, why are we doing that? That's just bad sense. No amount of science, and then what happens? We don't trust science anymore because the scientists are absolutists. They look at the numbers and they go, well, there's a chance that we'll run out of PPE if we let our, our family members see their dying loved one at the end of life. So let them be home and let them die alone in agony, drowning in their own secretions, prone on a ventilator in the worst place on earth, which is a hospital, the worst fucking place on earth to be as a human being is a hospital. I was a hospitalist full time for 10 years. Every second I was in that hospital, I was trying to get out of there. Every second my patients were in that hospital, I was trying to get them out of the hospital. It is the worst, worst place to be in the universe. It is a place of suffering and misery and errors and doing things to people often that don't need to be done. It is a place where we failed to prevent disease, to have a cohesive food policy, a cohesive social determinants of health policy, a, 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 a love for our fellow humans. So what happens? We dump them in the hospital and tell our suffering healthcare professionals, it's your problem now to deal with this. I don't even know where I was going with that, but I, I went off the rails. Um, but, th but this is the thing, sense and science, we, we, they have to be combined. Right, And this is why when I see these public health officials closing outdoor dining in California, and then I walk down the road here in San Carlos where our studio is, and I see these mom and pop restaurants and what they're doing now. So they had this vibrant outdoor dining scene. They closed the street, they spent money and built these wooden pavilions. They re-employed their staff Whose, whose livelihoods depend on this. These are business people who've been working all their lives to build this thing that is an expression authentically of who they are in the world and why they were put on this earth is to do this, to make this food and bring people together and have them enjoy it. And they were doing it outside in, in this vibrant community where the weather is good enough that we're blessed that we can do this outside. And what do they do? They say, no, we're, there's too many numbers now. Let's shut down outdoor dining. And now I walk down the ghost town that was this community and I see takeout, which people aren't doing because they're all frightened. And I see them selling their bottles of wine on a stand on the street to make ends meet. And that is as emotionally devastating as seeing an 80 year old stuck in a house somewhere, self-isolating, fearful, because they are high risk, wondering, am I gonna die of something else before I can hug my granddaughter again? This whole pandemic, all of 2021, has been a shit show of suffering on every level. And to deny the nuance of that is to deny our very humanity. It's to deny the ability to see that that suffering small business person 
is as wounded as the 80 year old that's forced to be at home is as wounded as the child who's lost a father to coronavirus because he was an essential worker who got it or he was someone who chose not to wear a mask and not to distance because he, he believed some misinformation online or believed some politician who told him it was all a hoax. I mean, it's tough. 2021 has traumatized us. I don't care. That's one thing we have in common. I don't care what your political persuasion is, how you feel about the pandemic. We share the trauma that was 2021. Did I say 2021? I hope that wasn't a Freudian slip. 2020. 2021 is going to be beautiful. I have no doubt. It's going to be vastly better. And this is why, because we're going to learn the lessons of 2020. And this vaccine, now that it's here, now that we've looked at it, is, it's, it's a little too late. Let's be honest. It's too late. But it's still going to save thousands of lives, thousands of lives are gonna be saved. And it's gonna give us a way to reach herd immunity fast and open up and get back with our lives. It is crucial. And it's science combined with sense. Now, where are we losing sense a little bit? in how we're rolling it out, right? I, th I think we need to be really careful about how we distribute it. It needs to go to the people that, whose lives are gonna be saved, who are at the highest risk. So we need to make sure that's right. Sita Laura, thank you for the New Year's blessings to you and your family Z. I hope you stay well learning lessons and moving on. Yes, I think it's a great admonition for all of us. Sandra Good, thank you for the stars on YouTube. Um, let's read some comments here. Thomas Ever After says, what are your honest thoughts on asymptomatic spread of the virus? My family of five tested for a trip to Maui and my husband tested positive twice and never had symptoms. My honest thoughts are, I think asymptomatic infections are real, obviously. I think asymptomatic spread happens, but it's only in those situations where you have prolonged exposure with very poor ventilation for long periods of time, i.e. households and even households less, less than people. Because we have to make the distinction between asymptomatic, meaning never have symptoms, and pre-symptomatic. So pre-symptomatic says, well, you're asymptomatic at the time of your test, but eventually you do develop symptoms. Well, those people are probably more infectious, higher viral load. It's simple numbers game. Now, what can help with that? That's why masking is advocated because that will definitely reduce. Now people say, well, how come whenever a mask mandate happens, it looks like numbers continue to increase? Well, correlation and causation. Why would a city mandate masks? Because the numbers are out of control. And so throwing a mask mandate on that no one listens to anyways is not gonna affect those numbers. Now, there's a fair bit of evidence that Masks don't eliminate infection, but they turn a symptomatic infection into an asymptomatic infection by lowering viral load. And I would refer you to Monica Gandhi's shows with us for details on that. And so that's why we think it's a good idea. I understand why people hate masks. I hate them too. I, I, and I, I think cloth masks are kind of silly too, but hey, if they lower viral inoculum, then great. So that, that's my thinking about that. Now, back to the vaccine. My wife got hers yesterday. She's at Stanford. I'm nowhere in the queue to get this vaccine yet because I'm on staff at, at UMC Hospital in Las Vegas 
And because I'm not actively seeing patients right now, I'm not in the queue, which means I have to wait, even though I'm 47, have a, a genetic clotting disorders, I'm at reasonably high risk to die or be very sick from COVID. But I'm also pretty careful. I don't go around traveling. I wear a mask in public. You know, I pretty much stay in the studio, right? Um, with decent ventilation when we have a guest and that sort of thing. But I'd love that vaccine. I would actually probably kill for that vaccine right now. If someone were to say, hey, I'm gonna give you this and it's not taking it away from someone who needs it more. Cause that's why I'm not like pulling strings to get it done. Then I would do it in a second. And then instead, what I read in the LA Times today, which of course is fake news, uh, is that 29% of healthcare professionals are vaccine hesitant relative to 27% of the general public. And that they're actually returning vaccines in Southern Cal because staff at the hospitals, enough staff at the hospitals are declining to be vaccinated. And that got me thinking, well, why is this? And reading the article and thinking about it. Well, a lot of healthcare professionals think the vaccine was rushed. And again, I've told you why I think that's wrong, right? But they think it was rushed. A lot of healthcare professionals have a victim mentality, which is appropriate. They didn't give us PPE. They sent us in to fight this virus. We died. Now they're telling us, be the guinea pig, be the first tier to get a new unproven vaccination uh, that is already too late. Now we've survived so long without getting COVID with our PPE. Why should I get this vaccine now and end up putting myself at risk? That's how they feel about it. I think a lot of them. Now, when I say they, this is gonna get me a lot of crap, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Doctors have some tendency to, to feel this way, but when presented with the evidence and they look at the evidence, often they're quick to say, okay, that looks good. I'm cool with that. Or they actually know which authorities to trust on evidence uh, interpretation. So they can listen to people that they go, okay, that's a credible source who I know how they think. And I understand the basic immunology. I understand the basic molecular biology of this. I can make this decision. That is much harder for other healthcare staff, nurses, respiratory therapists, um, social workers, case managers, others in the hospital. And I say this not to disparage the level of their molecular biology or immunology training or their intellect for that matter. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with our conditioning and our, and our general um, way of, of, of our training of looking at this particular matter. So what I've seen online is a predominance of nurses, for example, on social media, loudly shouting about how they will not get this vaccine, they will not get that vaccine. And that, and that includes HPV vaccine for their children. That includes influenza vaccine, even though they are potentially putting patients at risk. Um, and that definitely includes the new mRNA, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And I say nurses, and again, it's funny, because Code Blue Memes, who's a big Instagram account, it's a, it's a, a ER nurse, said this as well. And uh, a lot of nurses were weighing in going, yep, I see this too. He goes, I just, it's amazing to me. There are so many anti-vaccine nurses. And I think it's because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think nurses 
tend to, first of all, they don't have that particular molecular biology immunology training because it's not necessary for typical nursing. They are, they do tend to use their intuition and sort of connective skills more. And if you feel this thing out, you go, God, man, it does feel like it was rushed. It does feel like we're guinea pigs. It does feel like um, pharma makes money from this and we're always the ones who suffer. And nurses in particular are the first to be thrown under the bus. So now line up, show me your arm and take one for the team again, right? And this is the tragedy of that, is that nurses are at highest risk. They're with the patients the most. They're the ones the most trusted profession in the United States are nurses. It ain't doctors, it's nurses. And so when they feel this way, when they, and as Risa Doobie says on YouTube, there's a lot of nurses on Team Z, we're not all crazy. I, and I never said that. I said that if you look at the relative proportions of people who are anti-vaccine in healthcare, there are more relative proportion, proportional nurses than say doctors. And again, I will take shit for this and I'm willing to take it because it's true. Sometimes these truths are hard to hear, but it requires some reflection. So because nurses are the best educators, the most connected to the patients and more trusted than doctors, when they teach about vaccinations in, in a way that is uh, um, actually scientifically correct and useful for patients, like, hey, this is the study on this, these are the risks, these are the benefits, that's a beautiful thing. But when I see anti-vaccine nurses spouting stuff that I, in a second, I can go, that's wrong. That's a misunderstanding of the data. You've been on the internet too much. Uh, that is an emotional argument, but not a scientific argument. And again, I have the luxury of being able to do that sitting here and you know thinking about it. On the ground, people are human. And that's why I think a lot of healthcare professionals are declining the vaccination. I'm telling you right now, give me that. If you're turning it down and it's going back to Moderna, send it directly to me. Give it to a nursing home patient. Give it to someone who's over 65. Give it to someone with a couple chronic diseases. But understand that what you're giving up is desperately needed by people at high risk of whom you are one because you are in the hospital. And it, it, it hurts because look, a big part of my audience is nurses and they are woke. The vast majority are, are warriors for truth and are educators, but that minority that are, they are the loudest minority. And I totally understand why they feel the way they do, but that doesn't mean I condone it. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna call it out and say, no, this is, this is just not true to the best of everything we know about this science and the sense, we're talking about science and sense. What you're saying even doesn't even make sense when you look at the actual evidence, it makes no sense. So I got that off my chest, cancel me if you want, wouldn't be the first time. Um, actually, you wanna get canceled? Forget it, nurses are a joy, nurses are a pleasure. If nurses cancel me, I probably deserve it. Doctors cancel me all the time. If I dare say something like, you know what? A nurse practicing at the top of their training is awesome. <gasps> is that code for giving nurse practitioners independent practice, C-Dog? Let me call up your speaking engagements and have them cancel you, which they have done. 
and has been has happened to me. I've had speaking engagements canceled and guess what? I still keep the speaking deposit because that's in my contract. So you just got me a free 50% of my talk and I don't even have to go do the talk. Thank you, Mr. or Ms. Doc for being such a hater. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is cathartic. I'm gonna keep going, man. It's New Year's Eve. All the 2020s demons are getting expunged, my friends. All right, where are we? I think I, I think I talked about the main things I, I wanted to talk about in the title, right? Anti-vaccine healthcare peeps, masking after vaxxing, where'd flu go? Let's take some comments and see what's going on here. So, um, Freight Train 54, do you honestly think Moderna would risk a multi-billion dollar lawsuit on unsafe vaccines? Jesus Christ, either take it or take your chances, but stop trying to scare others. Yeah, that's the thing, evaluate your risk, dude. Now people will say, no, Moderna and Pfizer are absolved of risk. No, we don't know that. We don't know they're absolved of any risk. You can sue, you can sue them both. And if you don't, you can go through the vaccine court and get compensation. That was set up because so many people were frivolously suing pharmaceutical companies for MMR and vaccinations like that, claiming things that were off the wall. And the burden of proof was, the burden of proof is actually lower in the vaccine court than it is in a civil court. So you can go, hey, you know, it gave Hannah polling autism. Okay, well, the burden of proof is lower in this court. Sure, here's some money. And it, it's... Pretty nuts, but look at your own risk and go, look, I'm a 20 year old with no comorbidities, not obese, don't have problems. Do I need to go rush out and get a vaccine right now? Probably not. I'm 60, I have diabetes. Yeah, you need a vaccine. That's, that's it. Because again, your absolute chance of dying is not that high, but it's way higher than any risk of the vaccine, way higher orders of magnitude higher than the risk of taking the vaccine. If you had no risk of ever getting COVID in your life or of dying of it ever, or of transmitting it to someone you care about, then the minuscule risk, one in a million of whatever it is we haven't discovered yet with the vaccine, you know, whether it's anaphylaxis and you're not treated right, or um, that's really it, that's really it. We haven't seen anything else. Um, then it still makes no sense to get a vaccine because now there's tiny risk with no benefit. What's the point, right? So that's how you have to kind of think about this stuff. Um, thank you, Cheryl Short. Uh, let's look at some Facebook comments. Um, well, actually, you know what? Oh, wait, hold on. Charlotte Helen, I'm a neurology PA. I'm seeing so many cases of COVID dementia right now. The long-term effects of COVID seem scarier than the possible risks of the vaccine. All right, let's talk about that. So yes, there are risks of long COVID that we don't fully understand. They're still relatively limited in terms of numbers, but they're there and we don't understand them. Now that's a double-edged sword. It's a way to say, okay, we take this seriously no matter what your age, no matter what you think about dying of COVID, there's still these other mor morbidities that can happen. And I think that's important to look at. And it's important to science the crap out of what's going on with long COVID because it'll actually answer the questions about chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and other syndromes in the spectrum of this where we're like, what the hell is going on here, right? But you have to be really careful not to then overestimate the risk of getting long COVID the vast majority of people who get infected with coronavirus have either asymptomatic or minimal symptoms, recover fully with no long-lasting sequelae. 
which means again, that's how you ought to risk stratify people and go, okay, how are we gonna set public policy to save the most lives and the most suffering, meaning long haul COVID and all that too, at the least overall cost. And you gotta look at the total harm minimization. So that business over there that is destroyed, that's a cost. You better count that in. It's like when you look, when you drive a car, and you think, oh, it, this is super cheap getting A to B. Why would I use public transport? The car is way cheap. You're not counting the environmental cost of that car that you don't feel throwing carbon into the atmosphere or whatever, the you know burning up of the tires that uh, use fossil fuels to make the, the petroleum products, whatever. The, the, the environmental impact of making tires, for example. You don't count that in your estimation. So you continue to do the car driving, which then we find out has this huge cost that only becomes apparent after years of doing it and is actually devastating. Well, and I'm using that as an example. The same goes with our COVID response. If you just go, well, we're gonna save a bunch of lives, so let's do everything we can to save a bunch of lives. Then you find out that you have destroyed a generation of young people, you've wrecked a social fabric, you've killed a ton of people from opioid overdose, alcoholism, substance abuse, loneliness, depression, suicide. And you've destroyed the livelihoods of tons of people that put them in a lower socioeconomic status that now affects their health in terms of chronic disease and kills millions of people later, then you done fucked up. So you gotta look at the total harm minimization when you make policy, which means you need smart people to look at it. You need to stop crapping on expertise, but you need to also make sure that the science is matched with sense with common sense that means, okay, does this make sense? Does it make sense to shut down outdoor dining? Does it make sense to mandate people wear masks on outdoor trails in California? Please, 2020, go away. Uh, let's see where we at here. Um, so other things I just gotta get off the chest. 2020 reminded us that the internet is a shit show. Social media is a algorithmic game designed to manipulate us. Facebook is absolutely complicit in the destruction of the fabric of society, absolutely. And I owe Facebook a lot. We have 2.1 million followers on Facebook. It is our main platform. It generates revenue for us in the form of ads. YouTube, same thing, different degree. YouTube's algorithm suggests videos to you, but Facebook, Facebook is a whole different game of manipulation. And, and, and again, this has generated the polarization. It's generated an isolation and a depression in people. The more you use social media, the more miserable you are. Our children are suffering from this. And so one thing 2020 has taught me that, hey, misinformation spreads six times faster than real information. Increasingly in 2021, my goal is gonna be to focus on the part of our platform that really is gonna work and is gonna help people. And that is the education and the community that we build when we're not playing the polarization, clickbait ad revenue game. And that means these sort of tribes of people that are actually paying for content they like, and it ain't that much. So five bucks a month on Facebook, five bucks a month on YouTube, five bucks a month on Locals, which is a new thing where it takes you totally off the social media thing. It's an app and it's a website. I, that's grown rapidly since I started it a month ago. 
It's already got as many supporters as we do on YouTube. And it's because people love it. They tell me, oh, dude, like there's no BS. Like people are nice to each other for the most part, but they have intellectual discussions. And you're going there for the creator you care about, not getting sucked into an endless vortex of, oh, what's happening here? What's happening here? What's happening here? What's Oh, wait, what's this? Oh, I'm outraged, dislike. Because that's the game that social media plays. So more and more, I think I'm gonna focus on building those communities. And you can check them out on our website at zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. But that's what I'm most grateful for in 2020 is that we those things grew exponentially. And now my studio, the gear we use to, I'm transmitting in 4K right now live to YouTube and it downsamples on Facebook because they're cheap. But I'm able to do that because you guys support the show. I pay my team. I'm able to stay independent. I took, I deleted the sponsorship page on my website because I no longer want to do sponsorships on my show unless it's something I'm so unequivocally passionate about that I'm willing to, you know, uh, to do it. But otherwise, no. Why? Why? All it does is create conflict and stupidity and make me beholden to someone. Then I can't say something because what if I piss off so-and-so? You know, like what if 23andMe gets mad because I took a shit on genetic testing or what if, you know, it's like, no, mm -mm, not playing that game anymore. Why? Because of you, because you took us off that treadmill. You know, the other thing we did this year that I don't regret for a second, 50 plus thousand people on our Facebook associated ZPAC Tribe Talk discussion group, 50 plus thousand people moderated by really selfless people that were trying their best to moderate. It became such a shit show of political polarization, anger, meanness, just the worst kind of feces throwing nonsense. It was everything that's wrong with the internet. And then a bunch of really good stuff. Some community, people helping each other, helping each other during the pandemic. But when I, once I poked in there and I was like, you know what, this is causing harm. And that moderators were, were mentally suffering. Like they were actually, I, I think a couple of them are close to mental breakdowns, just dealing with the crap, the hate that they were getting. And it's like, okay, how about this? Click, it's shut down. 55,000 person Facebook group. Like Facebook was messaging me, what are you doing? Like I'm shutting down something that I think is poisonous to society. That's 55,000 people that are spreading your brand and is part of your social media influence. Mm -mm, no, it's not. This is all that's wrong with social media. And I won't put my name on it. I won't facilitate it. I'm not gonna catalyze it. And so now the discussion groups are for people who have skin in the game. Five bucks a month, well, you're not gonna get booted out of that group by being a dick, are you? You're gonna be courteous to other people who are like you. They care about the end point. They may have different ways of getting there, but they're gonna be part of this closed group. So we have it on Facebook for supporters. It's like almost 8,000 people there. And you know what? They're pretty civil to each other. Every now and again, it gets real and I intervene, but for the most part, it's been good. Locals is the same thing. YouTube doesn't have the discussion component, which I don't like, but it has really high quality searchable video, which I do like. So it's all, you know, kind of there. So that's, that's how I, 2020 has been a learning experience for me. It made me realize that, you know, I'm not, I'm no longer, I can't hide behind being some internet clown with this fake name of ZDogMD making, you know, hip hop videos and making fun of anti-vaxxers. It's, it's, th that's not who I am. <laughs> You know, 
And 2020, the one positive bright spot of having a pandemic is, whoa, wait a minute, we do have something to say about this. We can bring people to the alt middle where they're transpartisan and they respect everybody's moral sort of foundation and can argue more persuasively through that respect. And I'm gonna talk seriously about things I care about and I'm gonna empower you guys to do the same thing. So I'm deeply grateful to all of you for allowing this to happen during a very difficult year when we've all been struggling. I get a lot of messages from people saying, thank you for helping me get through this year. And I write back and go, no, thank you. If I didn't have you to kind of get some of this stuff, like where I'm so frustrated with how the media is spinning something or how people are behaving or whether it's pandemic or any of this nonsense. And I'm like, why do people believe this stuff? Let me try to understand and love the person who would believe this and why. And then when you do, you realize, oh, we have a lot of work to do. Man, it's a lot of work. So that's really what I wanted to say as my final live show of 2020. Thank you everybody who shares these videos, who leaves a comment, who hits like. That helps these legendary YouTube and Facebook algorithms go, oh, something's up here. The computer says, this needs to go out to the world. That helps so much. If you believe in what we're doing, if you believe in our message, even if you don't fully agree, if you want people to have good conversations, just hit like and leave a comment and it juices that algorithm and gets the stuff out there so that it fights the misinformation where it's absolutists speaking in absolute terms. You know, it's like Obi-Wan said in those horrible prequel movies, only a Sith speaks in absolute Anakin. It's true. And I'm down with the Sith, but not that down. All right, guys, speaking of which, Doc Vader, 2021, let me know if you need to see, if you need to holler at a boy because he's there. I love you guys so much. Um, stay safe on this New Year's Eve. I will see you on the other side of a year change, unless you're in Australia and there's some international dateline voodoo that's happening, in which case, happy new year, mate. That was the worst Australian accent I've ever used. Might've been New Zealand. Don't know. Never will know. It's not enough. This is enough. We out. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community really. And we support and love each other and share again through our own experience how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful 
to have you with us.